Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. Queen Esther is a great singer, songwriter, actor, playwright, director, cook, apparently. <laughs> she does talk about cooking during the course of this interview as well. Oh, she's so great. Uh, this interview runs longer than a lot of my wheels off conversations do, and I wasn't about to try and rein her in or shut it down because it's just all so good. I feel like there's so much useful, actionable wisdom in the next hour of conversation that you're going to listen to. And I'm really grateful I got to speak with Queen Esther. She is uh, she's a very thoughtful person. I think you're going to love this. There's a There was a moment recently I was on stage in Plymouth, Massachusetts doing a solo gig in the venue. It's a place called the Spire Center, and it's a really beautiful old church turned synagogue, now turned performance space, 1860-something, fully haunted by ghosts and all that. But I was on stage, and I think I was dropping F-bombs, and I said something by way of apology, and... In the midst of that apology, I said, you know what I'm doing up here? This isn't sacred. Making a joke. And then went on to play the next song. And it bothered me, weirdly, for the rest of the night, this idea that what I was doing isn't sacred. Because it kind of is. Even the goofiest songs, even the most you know, noisy guitar strumming, the most butt-shaking dance moves, it's still, there's something about it that is sacred. And it. I felt kind of stupid thinking that. But talking to Queen Esther during this conversation for Wheels Off here brought that back to me, and I thought, no, that instinct was true. I was right. There is something sacred. And she... She really lays that that argument out really well in the course of this conversation, and I'm really grateful for that, among so many other things that came up. I'm really glad you're going to get to listen to this. Please enjoy it. Please welcome to Wheels Off, Queen Esther. Welcome to Wheels Off, Queen Esther. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. uh, For the edification of our listeners, where are you logging in from? I'm logging in from Harlem. You're from Harlem, New York City. Harlem is not necessarily considered to be a part of New York City. So I'm going to say I'm in Harlem. Nice. And that's your home. Yes, this is where I live. Sweet. I like your I like your painting and your couch. It looks like a very sweet little comfortable pad. That's actually me in that painting. (laughs) Nice. Who is with you? 
Um, that's me when I was in Harlem Song at the Apollo Theater. Nice. Yeah, directed by George Wolfe. Um, this artist uh, named um, Richard um, Merkin did the illustration, I think, for a New York magazine, New Yorker magazine. And, you know, after they do the illustration, I mean, they basically already paid for the painting. Um, B.J. Crosby actually told me how this works. She's sitting there saying that she's going to get this painting. And I, she's telling me all about it. <laughs> I literally turned around to her at, at my station and I said, no, I'm going to get it. And she exploded. She was so angry. And I did. But it's I've, you in the painting. That is me. Um that is actually me. I'm doing um, this uh, dance. Uh, actually, it's two different characters that this one particular actor plays on the left and the right of me. Um, but yeah, that's me. And I I thought he did a really good job. Um, everyone says they can tell by the smile in the painting that it's me. Yeah. Did your friendship survive your castmate? Yes. Okay. She was a saint. She passed away recently. Oh. Just devastating. She so was in um, Smokey Joe's Cafe, mm -hmm. uh, the original cast. She was nominated for a Tony, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, B.J. Crosby was a force. Her voice was incredible. Wow. Listen to that soundtrack. I think there's a song on it called Saved. If that doesn't lift you vertically off the ground by at least three feet, you're not alive. <laughs> well, speaking of being alive, what are you working on right now, Queen Esther, and how does it light you up? Oh, boy. I'm working on several different things. Uh, I've got a pandemic album called Rona that I'm about to release. I've got an album called Blackbirding that I just finished recording uh, and that I've sent off uh, to be mixed and mastered. Um, I wrote that while I was in residency in Gettysburg National Military Park. Uh, I lived on the battlefield in mm. a house that was built in the 1850s. And I spent my days uh, wandering all over the battlefield uh, after doing a lot of heavy research and wherever I was so moved, I wrote a song about it. That sounds heavy. So it's, it's, it's very heavy. Um, and I could tell you some stories. I will tell you some stories. Um, but, um, that album is done and, um, I sent it to, um, my little, um, patron saint slash, uh, surrogate music father, one of them at least, uh, Gary Valletri. And he just sent me a note back that said, this is the best album you've done so far. So that that's really encouraging stuff. Uh, certain people, I like to listen to my stuff before it actually gets out there into the world. And he's one of them. James Blood Ulmer is another one. I really trust his ears implicitly. Um, so that album is, you know... It's gonna. It's got to be done by the twenty fourth of March because I got a grant from the New York City Women's Fund for Media, Music, and Theater to record it. And if it's not done by then, I have to give the money back. Oh no, <laughs> I, I'm not giving the money back. So yeah, um, and I think um, I'm gonna have to put it out this year because I have to make it available on YouTube by the end of March. So that means I guess I'll be releasing two albums in one year, which seems kind of wonky, but you know, uh, I feel like I'm a night witch, you know, uh, the night witches, the Russian night witches, those, those girls who basically um, put together the planes um, with a lot of hot glue and duct tape and hope and they just flew below the radar and just bombed the living daylights out of the Germans out of nowhere. A lot of them were teenagers. That would be me, you know, just <laughs> totally flying below the radar and, you know, making dope art. I'm also in a play lab. Um, when the pandemic hit, uh, 
you know, I the the day that I got back from Gettysburg was the day that the city went into lockdown and I was in a tailspin. I spent something like, I don't know, more than five hours in line uh, for for groceries. Um, and when I got home and hermetically sealed myself into our apartment with my permanent boyfriend and our fur boy, I really didn't know what was going to happen next. I remembered uh, this musician. I don't know if how familiar you are with jazz musicians. Um, no, nah, not enough. <laughs> well, it's uh, Joe Bowie. Lester Lester Bowie is Joe Bowie's brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said to someone that I know, don't be in New York City for 10 and 15 and 20 years and have nothing to show for your time, which really profoundly punched me right in the gut. Uh, he was from Missouri. Um, I'm not from here. And so every time I get stuck, I, I think that, and I, it just gets my, it gets me going. It gets my wheels spinning all over again. So I thought, what can I do? We're in lockdown. I got into a play lab with New Perspectives Theater. I wrote a one act that got produced uh, in their play lab festival. Then I joined another play lab in Jersey, all of this on Zoom. And although they did do the festival in person, and now I'm in a play lab with the WP Theater. Uh, it's called the Pipeline Play Lab. It's two years, and that'll culminate in an off-Broadway run for the full-length play that I come up with. Wow. So tonight, this evening, uh, is the first night that I will read my stuff. I'm extremely excited. I've got two pieces that I'm going to have read. And I'm sort of, I I woke up today like it's Christmas <laughs> and bounced out of the bed after having not much sleep, just putting the finishing touches on the last edit so I could send that off to everyone because some people are coming in virtually. I mean, a jillion people applied for this. They only chose five playwrights, five producers, and five directors. Wow. So they'll ultimately produce five pieces the spring of 2024. So, you know, um, my hands are full. I mean, not exactly full. I'm still gigging and <laughs> I'm still developing <laughs> projects. You know, the ball is still bouncing in all these different directions. And I still have a lot of ideas that I'm pushing forward. But right now, at the moment, that's the stuff that has my um, complete and undivided attention. It's funny when I hear about projects like this or the, the the number of projects from like multi-hyphenate people like you, I, I always wonder, does it feel like you're doing a lot of different things? I mean, because, you know, you've got writing, directing, acting, uh, musical theater, making beautiful albums, going out and singing with other musicians uh, for their stuff. And then I'm sure there's even other things that I'm missing. Does it feel like you're doing a lot of different things and you're like scattering your um, your talents? Or does it feel like you've got this um, creative source and you're just funneling it into these things, you know, sort of simultaneously and what does it feel like? Does it feel scattered or does it feel like you're just, you you're in the moment and owning it? I'm just merrily. We go along, you know, <laughs> um, James Bloomer, when I first came to New York, told me that I was a harmonic artist, um, that I knew how to do many things well simultaneously, like a harmonic musician or the way that harmonic music is to be played. Can you explain harmonic? Oh my gosh, that's like me teaching you French over lunch. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's not, you know, it's not, it's a little, I don't really know how to, I haven't really come up with a succinct definition for it. I remember when I was in Leipzig with Blood and there was a review that he found of um, a concert that we did a few weeks before in Nuremberg. Um, that I should send you, actually, because it's really interesting. Um, and I asked him, what is harmonics? What is it? 
since he co-created it with Ornette Coleman, um, when they met, they realized they were going along these parallel lines. And he said, Har Melodics is a black man's soul praying to God in a language that only God could understand. That is a black man or a black person, black woman, black person. This is from us straight to God. It's like this, and the devil can't hear it. The devil can't, it confounds the devil. And I thought, huh. And he said, anyone else that tells you anything other than that doesn't know what they're talking about. So I thought, okay. And he would know, he invented it. And he would know, exactly. So um, thinking of music and creativity as a spiritual practice first, has always been paramount to me. I guess that's why I connected with that definition more than any other. I grew up singing in church. Um, I grew up understanding that music was a kind of conduit uh, to God, uh, a way of of communicating with God, that creativity works that way, um, that we all have the capacity to be creative if we let ourselves, that it's not something that's lesser than or something that is to be dismissed um, and that it's supposed to be a part of our lives. Um, Whether you're trying to figure out what's for dinner and you're having to get creative with what you've got in the fridge, these three or four ingredients, or um, you're coming up with, um, you know, some new way to rearrange the furniture in the room or, You know, there's a million and one ways in the ordinary mundane moments of our lives that we are creative. And we can apply that creativity however we want. We can turn it on the way up or we can turn it all the way down, but it's it's still there regardless. So when I move forward into the world as a creative person, uh, there is this urge, this entity, this impetus, and all I'm really doing is following it. Whatever the idea is, that's what tells me what it needs and where it needs to go. If this is an idea that needs a musical in order to get itself out into the world, then I go out and develop that skill set that I need to create this musical for this idea. So I end up... um, having a lot of skills, knowing how to do a lot of different things uh, because I had to sharpen and hone all of these tools in this toolbox in order to make all of these ideas come to fruition, in order to get all of these ideas out of my head. I just had to do it, so I did it. Um, And in many instances, these are ideas that just won't leave me alone. They're things that I dream about, things that haunt me. You know, some people sit down like it's the Brill Building and they write songs and they sit down like that guy that, um, that give me a C, a bouncy C, <laughs> you know, and they sit at the piano and they just like Carol King, like a group of people sitting around like a committee, like what should the next verse be? And I've never been able to do that. I mean, I've been able to write music with other people. Um, I've certainly had my moments where that seemed like the direction that I was supposed to go in and what I was supposed to be doing. And then I grew in another direction and I started doing it this way. I would hear the song in my head or I would hear it almost as though it were playing in another room or in another part of the house. And I wander off into that part of the house and sometimes it becomes stronger and sometimes it becomes more faint. And I do everything that I can as the song is playing to write it down as I'm hearing it, as much of it as I can. Sometimes the song keeps coming back like a radio and sometimes it only comes once. I just hear that one little blip once and it was so good. It was so good. And sometimes I actually catch it. 
it's like catching lightning in a bottle. It's like mercury or something. And that's what I did with this last album, with the last two albums. I had plenty of time to sit still. And I know a lot of times I look like I've got a big butterfly net and I'm just running down the street chasing these butterflies. You know, I'm in the grocery store and I'm in the frozen food section and I'm, you know, fumbling with my phone because I've got to get to the app where I can record. <laughs> and I'm singing into the phone this little melody that I just popped into my head. And I know people are passing by me like, what is wrong with her? She's got a problem. Let me get my child away from the crazy pants <laughs> in the frozen food section. I don't care. I got the melody. I got it. I got it. And I go home and I listen to it and I go, that is what I heard in my head. And then I elaborate on that. That's 90% of the time. That's how I write songs. And I think they started coming to me that way because, well, first of all, I didn't really have anyone else to lean on, you know, all the people that I was writing songs with, you know, they went away for whatever reason. And, and I started growing in this other direction. And I remember praying, okay, God, these are your songs. If you want me to do something with these songs or whatever it is that I'm getting or whatever it is that you're sending me, I'm going to need a little help. You know, I don't have the money to record this album. Then the grant comes. Wow. You know, which musician should I use? And everyone suddenly steps forward available. I really wanted Southerners. I really, really wanted as many Southerners as I could on this album, because I believe that we are of a distinctly different culture, that there is a way of thinking, a way of life, a way of being um, that Southerners know and understand uh, that the rest of the world does not. And it's impossible to explain. I think that Northerners who are related to Southerners can see it. There's a kind of warmth. There's an intuitiveness. There's an understanding. And, you know, Yankees, they think, oh, well, you know, the blues. And, you know, <laughs> they eat some <laughs> barbecue or, I mean, they think they got it, you know. And it's like, it's more to it than that. It's a kind of familiarity. And it's it's more than just all of us having the same 30 or 40 records in our head. You know, um, if I'm talking to you and I go, listen, you know that Little Feet record? The one where she's on the swing and her shoe's coming off? There's a French painting that correlates with that. Do you know the name of that French painting? I'm thinking like Degas. No, go ahead. You know it. I don't remember the name of it, but you can see it in your head if you think clearly enough. I think I saw it at the Met. And you're going to say, I did see that at the Met. She's pale. She's heavy set. She's on the swing. She's going up. There's ribbons and her hair and everything. And that album cover is echoes that perfectly. Okay, well, you know, the second I had the album, the song, the third song on the second side, you know, the, uh, it, you know, okay, this is the beat that I want. It's like, you can, <laughs> you can do that with certain people who are of a certain generation. Um, but there are certain things in the same way that Southerners can grasp that no one else can. And it's in the water. It's in the water. And it's a very African thing. The South is a very African place. It is a kind of unapologetic about it with everything. You know, when the African captives came from certain very specific parts of Africa, you know, um, certain rice cultures, for example, came to the low country where my family's from in order to grow rice. They brought the foods that they ate along with them these white people insisted, um, these colonizers, 
so that they would be able to keep hardy. Why would you want to bring someone all the way over in an unfamiliar place and feed them something that might make them sick? So all of the food that is so intrinsically Southern is intrinsically African, the okra and the cowpeas and the sweet potatoes and everything else that everyone flips out over. And those recipes are of old, you know, um, my great grandmother, my grandmother and my mother taught me how to cook. And when I'm moving into the kitchen and I'm doing things and I'm cooking things, it is a re a reflection, a refraction. It is, it's like I, their hands are my hands. And the food that I'm making is exactly what my great-grandmother was doing. You know, um, the Hop and John that I make and stuff like that. My people One don't necessarily know what Hop and John is up here. <laughs> I wonder how much that applies to music as well. It's the exact same thing. That's <laughs> that's my point. I mean, that's my theory. Yeah. That's my oh, theory. Yeah. I mean, that I'm taking my grandmother's hands into the kitchen. I'm taking my great-grandmother's voice into the recording studio as well. And um, I am I am sort of channeling all of that from my childhood, you know, um, having grown up with great-grandparents and I grew up holiness and my uncle played sacred steel in church. Um, I can remember us staying in church all day long. I mean, we had some reason to be in church every single day of the week. And then on Sunday, it was all day. And there was a kind of back and forth with all of this music. And it never really stopped. Even when the sermon was happening, there was a kind of singing that was going on inside of it. And there weren't very many instruments in this church. There was a bass drum. There was pedal steel. And sometimes someone would play the piano, but mostly people were stomping on the floor with poles, with sticks, with uh, people were playing tambourines, people were clapping, um, really syncopated. Um, I mean, now that I think about it, um, that's what my earliest sounds were made of. And I think with the last record that I did, Gil the Black Lily, I just really missed my grandmother oh. terribly. She passed away. And if she lived to be a thousand, it would have been too soon. Yeah. And I felt a real break when she left this world from the things that I knew that were of old. My father uh, was born in 19... I want to say 1917, I think. Wow. So he was uh, 20 years older than my mother. And I've got quite a few siblings that are older than me. Um, the only girl out of six boys. And I'm the middle kid. Wow. Yeah. So, um, and I'm two generations removed from slavery. God, that blows my mind. It really didn't happen that long ago. Oh. Um, my father had 12 brothers and sisters who made the great migration north. Um, and both my father and my mother are from the low country. Uh, the low country being Charleston, South Carolina. Um, they call it the low country because it's below sea level. Mm. So when you get below, I guess, Columbia, you start, I mean, it's just swampland, swamp, really. Yeah. It's basically a swamp. Um, and all along that coast, you have, it's Gullah country. You know, uh, there was a uh, some sort of a minister or a visiting dignitary from, I think, uh, I, Liberia. I can't remember exactly which West Indian nation they came from. They came to visit um, Gullah nation, which is, has been um, designated um, a cultural corridor 
um, and its own nation by the United Nations. And he didn't need a translator. Everyone could understand everything that he was saying, um, clear as a bell, no translation needed. Um, some hundreds of thousands of people in that region um, don't necessarily speak English as a first language and nobody really knows about it. And you're talking about African folkways um, that span thousands of years that are directly connected to Africa. Thousands, tens of thousands, but certainly, I mean, they talk about um, what, you know, the MAGA crowd talks about 1776, I guess they want that to be the birth mm -hmm. of the nation and 1619, right? They're saying that's when the first Africans came to Virginia, but in the 1500s, uh, almost a hundred years before that, um, Africans came to the shores of South Carolina. The Spaniards brought them there. There was an encampment that went up in flames because eventually those Africans revolted and they disappeared into the forest with the indigenous people. And um, that's where they stayed. And this was light years before anyone landed successfully in Florida, um, before Plymouth Rock, before any of that. This was in the early to mid 1500s and no one talks about it. So um, yeah, that, that kind of, that, that kind of, Ancestral linkage, I guess, all of those waves are inherent um, in certain parts of the South. And we're all tapping into it as Southerners, whether we realize it or not. And I know that that's inside of the music, that lives inside of the music. I'm bringing as much of that to what I'm doing as I possibly can, because I believe that knowing who I am is my superpower. Yeah. I think that's true of anyone. I think when you plug into your uniqueness, the thing that makes you you, that is giving you something that no one else has. And that is what turns you into a kind of superhero. Now, I don't know. You know, uh, I remember when I started, you know, uh, in this business, in this business. And everyone <laughs> thought it was a good idea to sound like somebody else. I never did. I never understood that. Um, especially when those people eventually reached a certain level of success or fame or what have you, suddenly sounding like someone else wasn't such a good idea. So I've always thought um, me being me was the best thing I could do for me. Now, uh, you know, full disclosure, I mean, I was bullied in school. I didn't necessarily love myself a whole lot. Um, I went through all of the things. My mother taught me how to read when I was three years old. And by the time I was five, I was reading with the comprehension of children that were more than twice my age. And so I got, I, I really caught hell for that. The idea of a little kid like me moving to the other side of the library um, when other children my age didn't even know how to read or didn't even know the alphabet was really, um, it just flew in the face of what a lot of people thought a black girl should be or should be capable of, especially black people. So, you know, it is what it is. I think I developed a kind of armor early on and it's really been uh, a gift. There's always that silver lining, I guess, right? It made me fall in love with words. Mm -hmm. It made me um, create stories. And eventually, once I realized I could write my own narrative, I took off like a shot. I did 
arts recognition and talent search when I was in a performing arts high school after I got bust. Um, I was in the gifted program and I got bust uh, to the other side of town, uh, went to a performing arts high school. And now it's called Young Arts. But through Young Arts, I got scholarships to go to the University of Texas at Austin. So I didn't even want to sing. I just sang because I thought, well, if I get cast in a musical, I guess it'd be a good idea if I knew how. But I wasn't running around going, I got to be a rock and roll star. <laughs> I was running around going, I'm going to do theater because that's my lane. That's what I I can do. I know that I've got stage presence. And I didn't think that I was pretty enough to do anything on film or on television. So this is where I belong. And when I ultimately got to New York um, and I didn't get cast, I thought talent mattered. And I, I didn't realize that talent didn't matter. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. That was a real wake up call. That was a real shock to know that you could be really talented and that you could try and try and try and not get anywhere. And that I was surrounded by people who were really talented and trying and not getting anywhere and through no fault of their own. Um, luck had everything to do with it. Luck had more to do with it than anything else. And luck ultimately, when I would be presented with a, a, a possibility or an opportunity or a responsibility, luck would make way for me to get ready for the moment at hand. I move forward with that in mind, with the understanding that God wouldn't give me any opportunity that I wasn't ready for, or that I couldn't do, or that I wasn't capable of. That was just for me to roll up my sleeves and get to work. So the idea of imposter syndrome was completely off the table because God put me here. It doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what God thinks. And if God thinks that I'm ready, I'm ready. Oh, that's so beautiful because that's something that comes up so often in, the, in these conversations. And for you to have it figured out like that so early, it's it's beautiful. And that's such a useful, so much of what you're saying, I feel like is super actionable, useful. Like this is, this is great. I'm so glad I'm talking to you right now, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> My grandmother. Uh, you know, I call her when I'd have a bad day or when I'd have a bad audition. And, you know, she's an old lady in Charleston, South Carolina. You know, she's the kind of old lady who would, uh, the garbage men would be out there picking up the garbage and she'd make lemonade and take it out to them oh. on a hot day. And they'd stop and drink the lemonade. She'd, you know, or if it was cold outside, she'd make them hot chocolate and go out there with a tray of cups and bring it to them. Wow. I remember watching her do that. And she laughed and said, you'd never do that. Bet you'd never see that in New York, <laughs> New York City. I'm like, oh, no. God, no. Why, why did you do that? You gave them all that lemonade. And she's like, they're taking away my garbage. Yeah. I thought, okay. But I, I fell into the habit of calling her when I had a really bad day or when something really bad happened. And I just couldn't get over it. One time I went into an audition and I just botched it. And she said to me, look, if God wanted you to have it, you'd have it. You went into the audition, things happened the way that they did. And that's that, you know? Um, and if they call you, fine. But if they don't, that's fine too, because you don't want to be where God doesn't want you to be. If God doesn't want you to be there, you shouldn't want that. You don't want to be outside of the will of God. So if you insinuate yourself into something and God doesn't want you to be there, that means you're in the wrong place. And that's not the best place for you. You want to always be in the right place. So they really did you a favor by telling you no. That's one option that you don't have to consider anymore. And since you know that that's not where God wants you, you can go and be where God does want you. And I thought, huh, 
door closed, another door opens. Made perfect sense. And that's when I started celebrating all the no's that I got, no matter what form they took or whatever anyone told me. It wasn't a negative thing anymore. It was a, oh, God doesn't want me to have that skadoosh off to the next. (laughs) It's so funny. You have intuitively answered all the questions I normally ask. And by by all, I mean, there's four questions that, that comprise these interviews. But I, you know, I always ask people sort of, how did you start? Where did you start? And you covered that so beautifully talking about, you know, going to the into the church every day and growing up in this family and in the South. And I do wonder about that. Was there a moment? Was there an epiphany moment that you remember where you knew my life is going to be creating things, making things out of nothing and giving them to the world? Huh? You know, making things out of nothing and giving them to the world. Uh, I hit a wall when I came to New York and I auditioned and I didn't get, I didn't get certain things. I saw my friends getting Broadway shows um, and I wasn't getting the Broadway show. I wasn't getting uh, the national tour and I didn't understand what I was doing that wasn't getting it for me. And then I went to see John Leguizambo's Mambo Mouth at the American Place Theater. I don't know why I went. It just looked interesting. I thought he was cute. I don't know what happened. But I got a ticket and I I read an article about it, I think. And I went. And I remember sitting there with my arms folded and watching the show. And it was really, 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 really good. And he was really good. But I remember thinking loud in the in the back of my head, I could do that. I could totally do that. I could do that. I've been doing theater and musical theater since I was 12. So writing a monologue or writing a play, that wasn't that big of a deal for me. It was just something that I knew how to do. Kind of like guys sitting around who play guitar. It's like, can you tune the guitar? Of course I can tune it. (laughs) Yeah. What are you talking about? That's, yeah, give it, just give it to me. Right? That to it, it was as intuitive to me writing, you know. So I remember writing a monologue about a guy in my neighborhood, this junkie that I knew. And I did it at um, PS122. They had this thing called Avant-Garde-Rama. It was only maybe 10 minutes long. And that's where it started. I remember sitting down with Mark Russell and him going, you know, every actor is not a solo performer. Every actor is not a performance artist. There's a lot of actors right now because it's popular to be a solo performer who think that they can actually do this and they can't. So you're pulling this off. And when you come up with a show, a whole body of work, a show, come back and find me. And sure enough, I went to Dixon Place and I did this show called The Moxie Show. And he saw it and gave me two weeks. And that's when I realized, well, wait a minute. I can just give myself a job. I don't have to audition. I don't have to wait for the phone to ring. I can just give myself a job. I can still audition for things if I feel like it. But this is way more interesting. This is walking a real tightrope. This is risk. I'm growing exponentially with what I'm doing because I'm writing this stuff. I'm developing this stuff. I'm acting through this stuff. I'm singing through this stuff. This is, I like this. It's challenging. And then uh, I wrote another show. And then I wrote another show. I just kept going. Um, I think that's when I realized, once I realized I could build my own boat, um, I didn't have to wait in line for tickets to get on someone else's. That's when that that's when that hit me. Well, I love that. I've always felt bad for actors and other artists who have to wait around and depend on other creators to make the content for them. Well, a lot of musicians do that too. Yeah, that's true. You know, either you're uh, an originator or you're a replicator. Either you're waiting around for someone to give you the job or you're actually creating the job for yourself. And 
it's like a Mac versus a PC. <laughs> you know, they're both computers, they're both creatives, but one is a performing artist and one is a creative artist. And those are two completely different planets, two completely different interfaces. They don't move through the world in the same way. They don't respond to things in the same way. You know, um, it's just not the same animal. And so even now, um, when you're a few years into this uh, grand experiment that is your artistic life, when you come up against those internally generated obstacles, uh, not imposter syndrome, but 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 maybe, I don't even know exactly what it would be. There's obviously a lot of things that come up when I talk to people, but it seems like we all have them. What have you figured out as a way to a strategy to move move through those things? Is it only knowing that God's got your back or is there a lot of deep breathing that goes on? Is there a lot of meditation, forgiveness? Um, if something's not working, mm -hmm. um, if something's not working, I usually go for a long walk. And it's really easy to do in New York City. There's lots of places, lots of ways where you can just disappear. You can go for a nice long walk. And that usually, that's, that long walk is like an oyster fork. It usually dislodges something. <laughs> if I go for a long walk and if I don't take any music with me, or if I listen to music sporadically, it'll shake some idea loose if I let it. A long walk or a long workout where I'm on a treadmill, I'm moving, or something that's got me physically active to where my mind can drift. Um, morning pages. Yeah. I write in my, I've been keeping a journal since I was a kid, and it wasn't even morning pages. I had a really great uh, English teacher, uh, Jay Guy, uh, who is Jasmine Guy's mother, by the way. Wow. Who passed wow. away recently. Uh, she's the one who read, she had all of us keep a journal uh, in the eighth grade. And she read my journal and, and set me down and said, you are a writer. You are a really great writer and nothing will happen with it because you are also a procrastinator. <laughs> and she literally, I mean, teachers usually when something's up with you, they usually pin you down and say, I'm going to take this to your parents. She's the first teacher I had that pinned me down and said, um, you're going to deal with me. I'm going to nail you to the floor on this. She would find your weakness where whatever it was, and she would hold you to the, your feet to the fire until that weakness became a strength. Why are you procrastinating? like a puzzle, and she just took it apart. What is going on with you? And you have this thing in you. You have this gem. Don't you realize you can do this thing that no one else can? And I thought, well, writing, what's that about? I mean, and I would write things to her in this journal um, that I would have to turn into her every week. And that became, that journaling thing I did off and on, actually, when I got stuck and I did, someone suggested uh, the book. Julia you know, Cameron. Yes. Yeah. Um, I hit a wall. I was a top liner. I was coming up with melody and lyrics, but I wasn't really writing music. And I'd never really picked up a musical instrument. I mean, I played a little piano when I was a kid. We had an organ in our, you know, um, living room um, and a piano. And, but I never played the guitar. And I always sort of looked to musicians who could play instruments. And I'd say, well, I've got this idea and I'd partner with them. And the one person that I was working with left, he left New York. And I thought, well, crap, what am I going to do now? Um, and I just threw everything up in the air. I thought, I don't, I, what am I going to do? I went to that book and I made it all the way through the entire 12 week situation. And when I did, I had my album, The Other Side. And I thought, wow, this, this actually works. I don't know how it works, 
I think ultimately the book is saying you as an artist are precious. There's something very precious about you, something very unique, and you have this precious thing and you have to take care of it. And in order to take care of it, you have to take care of yourself. You know, you have to have these lovely, beautiful, intimate moments with yourself and really protect yourself in that way. You know, I can remember floating down the street in New York and coming up on some fruit vendor and he had the most beautiful blackberries that you've ever seen in your life and taking two pints of those home and washing them off and thinking about how when I was a kid, you know, it's Atlanta. Atlanta's called uh, the city in a forest because there's so many trees. There's more trees per capita in Atlanta than any place else in the country. And I can remember, I mean, we, we lived, the house we lived in, my mother still lives in, it's surrounded by trees uh, and you can't really see many of the houses, any of the houses around us because they're so far apart and the trees are so thick. And we used to run through the woods and I mean, run, 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 run and eat blackberries and, you know, muscadines and acorns. And my mother was like, oh my gosh, don't eat the blackberries. There's snakes in the bramble. So she would, you know, <laughs> spiders, you might eat a spider or a bug or something. So she'd say, if you bring the blackberries back to me, I'll make blackberry dumplings and mm. we go. <gasps> and I can remember her taking out a big pot and making blackberry dumplings for all the kids in the neighborhood. Like we'd all be sitting around with little cups eating these, eating these dumplings. Wow. I've never been able to get blackberry dumplings from a restaurant. If I have it, it's because I sat down and made it myself. So that, that's one of those things that just takes me right back there. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of comfort that I gave myself during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, that and fresh baked bread. I mean, mm. I'm, I know, I know how to cook and bake. I'm really good, but the things that I make are from the low country. Yeah. Like blackberry dumplings. You can't get them otherwise. I, I mean, I'm waiting for someone to tell me where I can get them in a restaurant. <laughs> I'd be more than happy to go and patronize that place if I could, but I've never found them. Um, like a lot of things, you know, like, I mean, I guess I could find Hopping John, but not as good as what I can throw down. Um, so Queen Esther, this has been one of my favorite uh, talks I've ever had because I feel like you've really hit on so many of like the most crucial pieces of wisdom that can be imparted to anybody who's, you know, struggling with their artistic career or young up and coming artists. I just feel like it's so much great stuff in this already. I wonder if you'd be willing to try and distill some of this. Imagine running into a 21 year old version of you, but living in today's world, but 21 year old you, and what advice would you give yourself? Oh, Okay. If I ran into a 21 year old version of me, the first thing I would do is I would thank her. I would say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for running every day, three to five miles a day and staying in shape and taking your health seriously. Thank you for not drinking alcohol, Thank you for not smoking cigarettes or pot or anything like that. I did hit a bong once <laughs> when I was in college and I lost my voice for two weeks. No. And at the time I was singing with Rotel and the Hot Tomatoes and I lost so much money. I never did it again. Oh, I barely crawled through what gigs we had and I, I'd cry and that got, you know, my I just, it was awful. It was yeah. really, really bad. But I would thank her for really taking care of me physically 
And I wore sunscreen. I wore sunscreen like it was my religion. And that's why my skin looks as good as it does. I wore sunscreen. I was a runner and I ate salmon skin, which is really filled, it's filled with collagen. So dude, look at me, look at this. I'm gonna look like this when I'm 90. (laughs) I'm gonna be 90 and I'm gonna come over to your house with some blackberry dumplings and I'm gonna look exactly like this. And everyone's gonna go, oh my goodness, do you? Do you are you friends with his grandkids or you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, so yeah, first would be the thank you. The next piece of advice would be play the guitar. Yeah. I was surrounded when I lived in Texas, I was surrounded by guitar players. I mean, it was a guitar avalanche, and I never really took any of them up on it. I could have taken guitar lessons from Big Al Gilhausen. He would have shown me plenty, but I knew Hubert Sumlin. I used to hang out with Hubert Sumlin when I lived in Austin. God. And Hubert, I think, was used to accompanying a vocalist. And what he implied was the guitar is really complicated and it's really hard. <laughs> and what you what you have is a gift. You have something special. When he I remember sitting in with him in New York in some blues club, and he turned to me and he said, Uh, he told his wife about me and his wife was a very spiritual person. She was a church lady. I mean, she was a, what, what we would call a prophetess. And she told him she'd never met me before. She said, she has God in her. She has God in her voice. So he said, guitar. Oh no, no you need to keep singing. You just, just, I I got this, I got this part. And he, you know, just get a, get somebody that's really got your back. And, you know, that's what you need to do. You need to stick. And and I, I, I was so humbled by that. I just thought, gosh, maybe he's right. You know, and then I started working with um, Elliot Sharp. I started working with James Flodomer. Um, I started working with a bunch of different people and really performance and refining all of that was all. I just wish someone had slid a guitar to me sideways, Mm. a parlor guitar, just something little that I could mess around with and get comfortable with. Playing an instrument and especially a guitar is such a boys club. And I just come from a boys club. I grew up in a boys club. You know, I was really trying to break away from all of that. And picking up a guitar at that time would have felt like I was going right back into all of that all over again. And I really didn't want to. I wanted to be my own man. And I was ultimately, I wanted to conquer something. And um, I feel like I did. But the guitar, if if the guitar had been more of a friend to me then, maybe I would have made more headway later on when I came to New York. But, you know, it's like Alberta Hunter says, you know, she wrote Downhearted Blues, one of the first blues songs to sell a million records. Bessie Smith recorded it and it blew up. She said, if I really knew all this stuff about music, I wouldn't have been able to write these songs in the first place. Yep. Sometimes, you know, it's what you don't know that really helps you the most. You know, I work with these musicians and they're wonderful and I love them with all of my heart, but they know all the chords. They know all the chords. And sometimes knowing all those chords gets in the way. Mm -hmm. You know, you and graduate school and the guitar and it's like, couldn't we just do this, you know? This one little, this one little thing in this direction. Um, not that I don't appreciate all of that. It's beautiful. Um, but there seems to be a great deal of guitar playing and musicianship that is technical and that is not um that's not spiritual. They're not thinking about 
um, anything that's spiritual. They and they will tell you that they're atheists. And I just think that's a very curious thing. It's funny when you were describing that about Hubert earlier, it made me think of that he was almost implying that your voice was the sacred and his guitar was the profane. Um, I don't know. That's an interesting thing to say. I don't know that I I don't know that he saw it that way. Maybe he did, or maybe that's what that's what he was implying, but um it yeah. is true when I listen to you sing, it's it's the kind of thing that I can't imagine somebody just learning how to do that. You know, it's it it comes from somewhere. I mean, I'll give you full credit for it. Don't don't get me wrong. But Please there's don't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but there is something otherworldly about it. I don't I don't believe that it's me. I believe that it's my responsibility to get out of the way and let inspiration, let God let uh, that thing that is so much bigger than me, that is so all powerful and all knowing take over. And if I'm not doing that and letting that use me and work through me, then what is it? It's like, what is it for? I, at this point, I mean, and you, you have that most clearly in church, Mm -hmm. you know, when you sing in church and it becomes meditative and you're open and this thing is just pouring through you. You know, I honestly believe that you can you can do anything and praise God. You know, um, but that's really what music is for. Yeah. Um, I don't understand. And I don't really understand, which is why, you know, the Southern musician is so important to me because... It's not always true, but usually they get that much. They understand that uh, this is not an, uh, uh, a godless practice, that this is a spiritual practice, and that I have to be a certain kind of open spiritually in order to really convey this music, in order to really put this over. There are people out here floating around who don't believe that, and I think they sound like it. Yeah. You know, I don't have to I don't have to explain this. You know, I I was um one of the um I mean, you know, the guitar player that I work with, Jeff McLaughlin, he's from Georgia. Um Hilliard Green, uh he was um little Jimmy Scott's MD for 20 years. Wow. He's from Iowa of all places, but his parents are from Georgia. <laughs> And he went to Berkeley, you know, uh, Steve Williams. Um, I think Steve is from, I can't remember where he's from, Baltimore, Virginia. I can't remember. Um, Kat Edmondson is from Texas. She's from Houston. Um, spent some time in Austin. Um, just about everybody that I'm thinking of. I mean, with few exceptions. I mean, I brought in Greg Lewis. Uh, to play organ on some things and, um, you know, um, um, Sharp Radway on piano. Sharp was a a choir director in church for 20 years, 25 years. You know, um, he's incredible. He's breathtaking. So to have that element inside of the music makes it breathe in a way and makes it come alive in a way that it doesn't necessarily, if someone were just technically really adept, there's just so much more to it than that. It's weird to have to even explain it. Yeah. Well, there's the stuff that registers on the wave file on the pro Tools session. And then there's the stuff that you can't see. There's, it's, it's like a level of belief or a level of, of love. I mean, really, that's what it comes down to. Right. Yeah, I think you can feel it. Mm-hmm. I think you can hear it. And I think you that's me. I, I, I think so. Maybe some other people are like, what is she talking about? I can't hear anything. <laughs> no. Oh, Queen <laughs> Esther, this is you so know? good. I feel like I feel like I could talk to you for three more hours and still not even skim the surface of all the good stuff that you've got to offer. 
the listeners of this podcast are just the world. And I just, I think the world of you, thank you so much for being willing to sit down and take the time and share your thoughts and your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And having heard a sneak preview of these two records you're about to drop onto the world, I can tell uh, listeners that they're so great. They're so great. I so, forgot I let you hear them. <laughs> you did. In a moment of weakness, you shared me some music and it's so good. In a moment of extreme weakness. Uh. No, the world will know soon enough. So it's not it's not that big a secret. Yeah. The first one's called Rona. That should be out. Soft, soft release before the end of February. And the other one is called Blackbirding. Yeah. And they're and they're very different and they're both great. And I just I, I can't wait to see what you do next. You're so great. Thank you so much, Queen Esther. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Osiris. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of the Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.